Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Bald Explorer Live. It's Friday the 20th, is it the 20th? 21st, 21st of August 2020. And um, we are live again on another reading of The Wisdom of the Fields by H.J. Massingham. And it's very nice of you to join me on Friday. It's uh, sunny here at the moment, but it looks like the weather next week is going to be a bit difficult. And I was going to be announcing that I was going to be away next week. I'm supposed to be going and interviewing a chap called uh, Philip Holden about farming. Um, and mixed farming and the way to to go. He's a, he is uh, part of the Sustainable Food Trust. And uh, it's going to rain on Tuesday, the day I've arranged. Apparently it's going to rain rather rapidly and grimly, which is a bit of a shame. Um, so, as a result of that, I may not go, but I'm going to make the decision tomorrow. I need to tell him, obviously. Uh, I may have to postpone it and see if I can do it another time because I want to film, I want to get some nice shots, A, of his farm and the Welsh countryside and all of that. I certainly don't want to go up there if it's pouring with rain. I don't want to travel all that way in wind and rain. But anyway, so uh, I I may well be around next week. I need to assess how these go. Um, Right, hello to TurboStream. Adrian, nice to see you. Thank you for coming along uh, to James Sean James Cameron, good afternoon, listening with some fish and chips plus a mug. Oh, yes, I was going to have a mug. I've got just a glass of water today. Uh, yes, because I need to go and get some milk. I've got Mr Suggett coming round later on, so hopefully, unless he's on call. Well, he is on call, unless he's actually called away. Lovely Julia is there, good afternoon. Ed Loud, uh, Audrey Forbes, John F., good afternoon. Larry Hazelwood, hello. Um, John F., is it John F.? Or is it John F's son? Uh, if it's the son, say hello. If it's John F's dad, say uh, bonjour. <laughs> um, Larry Hazelwood, hello to you. Uh, I'm retired, so every day is Friday. Or oh, well done, good for you. Uh, Diana Rolf, hello, Richard, and chat. Uh, Morton, hello to you. The Shire of, B- of Bummage. But sorry, that didn't come out quite the way I imagined it to do. Uh, <laughs> Bum Margan, because you have had runner beans. Oh, uh, you should do these readings at five, then you can say live at five. Oh, yes, that's true. Live at five. Uh, Morton says it's windy. Le- Lee Lawson is there. Hello to you. And Jackie Traynor. Hello, folks. So there we are. A few hellos. Um, I've been trying to get these on. Um, the podcast version of these. So if you're listening on the podcast, uh, hello to you as well on Anchor FM, Spotify and a number of other places where it sort of filters through. I don't know how it does it, really. Um, And I'm not responsible. I just load it up onto one place. But I have been a bit lax and two went up. The last two went up yesterday. Anyway, we are still on the chapter, whatever chapter it was, on cottages. It's not what you think. Thank you. Uh, This is section four on that, and uh, we will continue with our reading. Oh, and just before we do, Morton Lewis, who is in Spain, says, well, it's already five in Spain, so so live at five in Spain. Soil conservation is the bedrock of a supporting husbandry. The quality of the food produced 
depends on the quality of the land that produces it. If the cottage economist exports more than his surpluses and has little or no livestock to restore his land to the equivalent of what he takes out of it, he is exporting his fertility. This axiom applies with a special point to the land of the Vale of Evesham. Oh, yes, we were talking about the Vale of Evesham in quite detail yesterday, which, on the analogy of the French petite culture, bears a rapid succession of heavy vegetable crops. Nor can the smallholder afford to allow even a small portion of his land to remain unproductive. The quality, the quantity of land available is too limited and the rents are too high for him to experiment with seed mixtures or a, clo or a clover lay. These, anyway, would profit his land little unless fed off by the livestock that he no longer possesses. Since the war, too, he has had to plough up or grub up his grass orchards, a measure which temporarily increases fertility at its greater expense in after years. And that's true, they did do that. And, of course, they did think that all of this was going to be quite temporary, but actually it turned out a lot of these lands that were grubbed up and ploughed, put to the plough, remained to the plough and, and remains to the plough to this day. How, then, does he cope with this excessive drainage upon the life force of the soil? He who is the least likely of cultivators to disobey the biological law of return. He uses what farmyard and pig manure he can, which is very little. So he is compelled, against all his better instincts and traditions, to rely in the main upon, upon prepared fertilisers. Mr Gardner, who's given such faithful service to the smallholders of the Vale and been their friend, counsellor and champion for so many years, tells me that there appears to be no general decline in the fertility of the Vale. But he also tells me that the clay lands stand up much better to the fierce, intensive cropping than the lighter soils. These are quickly affected by drought and show an earlier loss of humus. Or, is it humus or hummus? Uh, it is a, co it is a cor correlati correlative to the rule of return that no land suffers from drought, no matter how prolonged, if it be well stocked with humus, which possesses a seemingly magic power of retaining moisture. It is therefore clear that these lighter lands... <coughs> Sorry, something in my throat. It is therefore clear that these lighter lands are being denuded of their humus, which is quite literally their life. There is as much prospect of restoring the humus of these soils by prepared fertilisers as there is of bringing a sick man back to health by repeated doses of brandy. But the Valesman has not been a cottage economist for nothing. There runs in his blood a perception of right values and of the right relations between man and the earth, which is always cropping up in the most unexpected way. 
he does not delude himself that an organism like the soil can survive on substitutes for organics. So he clamours with the sewage sludge which is locally made and approved by the sanitary inspector and the medical officers. But since the quality available is less than half he needs, he has to ration it. A few multi a few multipalities multi multipalities have converted their town mu municipal mu municipalities is it munis municipalities a few municipal you know getting your words around some of the your uh, mouth around some of these words is always fun a few municipalities have converted their town's waste into an organic manure which wholly satisfies results I wonder if that still happens I I wonder I don't I don't know. Do you, does anybody know? Is the manure that we create in the city collected? Is it collected by the fertilizer companies and dealt with in such a way? That would be interesting. Um anyway, a few municipalities have converted their own town's waste into organic matter with wholly satisfy satisfactory results it can be manufactured at three pounds a ton blimey uh, probably not anymore and other municipalities would follow suit in south africa the national veld trust has been formed to combat the appalling spread of erosion by among other measures of soil conservation the extensive use of composts and sewage sludge from the towns Sewage sludge is, of course, a kind of compost, and a letter I received from Rhodesia is very pertinent to the dilemma of the Valesman of Evesham, Evesham. The writer was shocked at us in England, not only defying the rule of return and exporting far too much from our farm produce to the towns, but letting most of the residents down... Sorry, but letting most of the residents run down the sewers... To the ocean. Uh, run, run down the sewers to the ocean. Don't you mean run the sewers down to the ocean? Anyway, his account of a Rhodesian experiment of which he was the pioneer shows the way for our Valesman. Captain Morbray cultivates thousands of acres in southern Rhodesia and the land, when he took over, was as poor outside the dust bowls as any in the empire. Lord Oh, here we go. Bledisloe, who paid him a visit, said that he had never seen such worked-out stuff, while Dr Bennett, the head of the USA Soil Convention Bureau, Conservation Bureau, remarked that he could see no way of such land ever growing enough proper food for the population to feed itself. It was the same Dr Bennett who, in his report on South African agriculture issued in 1945 under the auspices of the Union government, told what one prey is no longer an indifferent world that one quarter of the Union's entire cultivation has been lost to the dust bowl. Sorry, this is a little sort of in technical now, isn't it? Uh, malnutrition was the curse of Rhodesia, especially among the poor whites and the natives, exposing them all to a manner of deficiency diseases. 
The story of what Captain Mowbray has done is therefore epical. He was one of the very first farmers to introduce Sir Albert Howard's indoor process. In, in, indoor, but I-N-D-O-R-E. Not as opposed to inside the house. Indoor process into South Africa. And he himself makes hundreds and thousands of tonnes of compost for his farm every year. On it, he grows 15,000 citrus, cypress trees and from it he exports 15,000 cases of fruit each year. He has 75 acres down to tobacco and produces 2,000 to 3,000 bags of maize, great quantities of tomatoes, sweet potatoes, soya beans and other crops. They are not dissimilar, therefore, to the market garden crops of Evesham. But as the Valesmen have not, he has a... But as the Valesmen have not... He has a flock of sheep and 500 head of cattle. Thanks to him and a few other others, Rhodesia now practices the principles of soil conservation on a large scale. Hundreds of miles of contour banks have been built. Green cropping is becoming general, and not only are the rotations strictly observed, but the government gives a two-shilling bonus on the properly rotated maize. The effects of this compositing and the return to husbandry allied with it have been stupendous. Captain Mowbray lives in one of the unhealthiest districts of South Africa. He has three sons, now Spitfire pilots. He himself, now an old man with a broken back. His farm workers and those of other farms that pursue the same methods are in robust health. So are the crops and stock. In a few years, a revolution has been accomplished by methods described in England as the dreams of sentimentalists. Blimey. This is not the end of the story. Mr Mowbray, a student of soil, discovered a phosphorus deficiency, partly by the difficulty of setting grain and partly by observation of wild and domestic animals in their relish for raw bones and bone meal. He therefore made a phosphatic compost from raw rock phosphates which in the process of fermentation were converted into an organic compound he discovered a potash deficiency one year from the cracking of his tomatoes at the calyx end and one of boron another year from the hard skin of his oranges why when why, when he was using all his vegetable residues, green maturing and wasting no dung? It was because of the enormous quantity of the agricultural produce he was exporting. As he himself says, when all wastes were returned in China for 400 years, there were never any decline in fertility. But the Chinese holding was self-supporting and in our sense of the term... There was no export trade at all. There was an exchange of surplus. But modern demands on the farm... Oh, coming to the end of the chapter, please don't panic. Uh, I know this is all like a bit heady stuff, this. Uh, but modern demands on the farm all over the world to feed the big towns have upset this economy. When a farm exports more than its surpluses, it, its organic residues are insufficient to meet nature's rule of return. 
I think this is, I mean, I know it's sort of quite heavy, but I think this is actually quite an important element of um, our investigation into this whole thing. So it, is, so it is in the Vale of Evesham. Unless every town in Worcestershire returns a composted sludge to the small grower, what they might receive in fresh fruits and vegetables, the insurance of good health, the fertility of the Vale, will continue to decline. Greater London is the richest market garden land in the whole temperate zone. This runs for miles at its own doorstep along the alluvial Thames Valley, now largely a series of built-up areas. In time, its concern for its own health might relieve the Valesman from the pressures of an economic system that must, in the end, destroy their cottage economy, their livelihood and their land. Thus... The modern discovery of how to convert town wastes into humus may be the humble instrument of restoring England, to England, the regional self-government that she has lost. The only way to achieve it is for the town and country to become once more dependent on a regional basis, something I've been saying for a long time. Uh, if they become... So, in the fundamentals of life, soil and food, they will become so in the cultural and economic superstructure that spring from them. Through, so, though the self-supporting foundations of the Evesham peasantry are being tunnelled away, they are still heirs to their traditions and subsistence holdings. Mr Gardner has told me that in the winter of 1944 he took a photograph of one of these small holders breaking in his 14-year-old son in the hand-digging of the heavy blue lias clay of parts of the Vale. There were four and a half acres to be done and they had nearly finished a two-acre strip. The little boy was all smiles and the father is an ex-sergeant who has a rooted objection to a digger straightening his back otherwise than on the parade ground. Whatever compromises it has made or has been compelled to make, the heart of the Vale community is still sound. Well, still sound back then. I, don't, I wonder if there's any of the Valesmen in Evesham left. So, sorry about that. That was uh, quite um, in-depth there about what they'd found out in, in Africa. But basically, I think what we're saying is it's the law of um, what you, the, the more you take out, if you don't put back the manure and the nutrients and the, the, you know, the, the, the organic matter to break down to feed the soil and the feed, more importantly, the humus, which is this magic... Um, is it the fungi? Is it the fungi? I know there's the mycochorial stuff as well, but whatever that is, um, it feeds the soil so that the next crop can grow. Um, and uh, so that's that's very good. And, you know, the, the men there didn't want to use the artificial um, chemicals that the agro-industry are providing. Uh, anyway, so that's that's good. A lot of um, chatter going on in the in the chat room, which is lovely to see. So what have we got here? Surprising how many things start out as temporary and become permanent, says Edward. Yes, I, absolutely. We, we see that all the time, don't we? Yes, sewage sludge is used on farmers' fields. Um, I didn't know that. 
It stinks. Yeah, I bet it does. Uh, Jeff Kellison says, of all the food waste from South Frances- San Francisco is sent to a company that converts it to fertiliser and it is spread on the Napa Valley wineries. Ah, right. I'm glad it doesn't go to waste. Sewage sludge is used but can't be used on organic farms, says uh, Linda Kane. Uh, is that because within the sewage are chemicals that have also gone into the... Or is it because we've eaten foods? I mean, I'm assuming that this sewage sludge, that what we're calling sewage sludge is, is human waste, a mixture of the liquid and the solid, is it? Uh, and because we eat all sorts of weird things, it's not very healthy for organic plants. Is that what we mean? Jackie Trainor says, uh, why is that? I guess it still contains all the additives and e-numbers. Ah, yeah, there we go. Well done. Good question. Um, John James, uh, yes, I've had that on my tomatoes. Uh, one would think cack would be so poetic and productive. Edward says, my dad worked for the sewage near Lansing and told me the water ran out to sea was too pure to drink and the solid was like black talcum powder and solid and oh and sold for manure gosh apparently they have found salamone semolina not semolina you know what I'm trying to say salmonella Toxic chemicals and microplastic in sewage spread on farms. And so so go back to 1940s, pre the mad thing for plastic and uh, the salmonella and the toxic chemicals. I guess that was a lot purer back then than the huge amount of chemicals that we must pass through us. How how extraordinary. Um Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, Turbo says, uh, Linda, they're able to test sewage for COVID in Spain and they reckon it was present in Spain way before 2020. That's very interesting because I think a lot of us have had it before it even hit the news. I know that I had something strange that affected a bit of my lungs because I had a, a lung condition a while ago. It's gone now. I don't have it. Um, but this, and I know that feeling of something tickling the hairs in your lungs. I know what that's like because I've had it before. And I had something like that, but it lasted about two weeks. So I think some of this COVID thing has spread through us. I think the whole thing is, um, yeah, had been earlier than than people realised. The liquids are separated and treated, then go back into the rivers. The sludge is sold. is the solids left behind. Gosh. And Sean says on this vile subject, there is a movement in London who use their own poo and pee on the garden run by the universities. Right. I love semolina, says Josh. Haven't had it for years. Yes, I love semolina. Don't get confused with salmonella. Two separate bags two different products anyway we're on chapter six ladies and gentlemen let's progress this is called sussex yeoman 
And there's a quote by William Blake who says, Great things are done when men and mountains meet. They are not done by scurrying in the street. It's a nice little, nice little line to remember, isn't it? Great things are done when men and mountains meet. They are not done by scurrying in the street. Corbett. Corbett? Yes, Cobbett. I beg your pardon. William Cobbett. Cobbett, not Corbett, there's no R in it. Cobbett was a yeoman who made himself the voice of an older England threatened by new forces. The yeoman was the rural middle class and the period of the late Tudors and early Stuarts was the most favourable to it in our history. Gregory King's tables in 1688 give us the number of the larger yeomen as 280,000 and of the lesser 660,000, nearly one-fifth of the entire population. A man of substance content to remain in his station, whether of many or few acres, he had plenty of healthy intercourse with the lesser gentry with whom his children intermarried and was at the same time the aristocracy of the peasantry. He frequently defended the copyholders in resisting pressure from above, especially from the wealthy merchants turned landlords. Many yeomen, too, were millers, innkeepers, smiths, keepers of ordinaries, gloves, miners, glassmakers, iron workers in the Sussex Weald, and clothiers as well as farmers. To a small extent, this dual occupation survives to this day. The village innkeeper, for instance, is still found to be one who owns and works his own farm. The miller yeoman is a further example, but he has all but vanished. This coupling of field and workshop in the same man lasted right up until the Industrial Revolution, which destroyed the interdependence between them. The goodman's housewife was likewise a tower of strength in the maintaining in maintaining the self-sufficiency of our forefathers. She was a, a whole row of town shops in herself, with his husbandry and craftsmanship and her baking, brewing, flax weaving, wool spinning, cooking, preserving, gardening and house management. The yeoman's family honoured the principle of home and self-help which Cobbett demanded. The yeoman represented homeliness in the richest sense of the term. Through, Though thrift, industry, simplicity and good neighbourhood were the watchwords of this plain, honest man, he lived well in his roomy house made of the local materials. It had solid furnishings, feather beds, many sheets and quilts, tapestry and wainscoting, pewter, silver apostle spoons and fine napery. The farmhouse itself was accompanied by dairy house, bake house, brew house and barns. Nothing was imported but sugar, where honey was not used, and spices for the innumerable puddings. Gervais Markham and others 
have been unanimous in praise of his husbandry. And a man who makes three to four ploughings for every crop may be trusted to know his way about his own fields. Yea, a seasoned industry can turn stones into bread and make barrenness itself fruitful, is a yeoman's own words. In our own days, when loss of fertility is worldwide, a modern writer has advocated four ploughings or the use of a harrow alone as the only means of incorporating organic humus into the surface soil. So the old yeoman has become a pioneer. The uh, modern writer turns out to be, according to this, Edward Faulkner in Ploughman's Folly, 1945. The trouble with me is if I am reading a book and there's a quote like that and you think, oh, and then I find out who it is, I immediately end up on bloody Amazon or Abe second-hand books looking for such a book. And then it arrives and sits on my shelf gathering dust. There are two good reasons why the yeoman should have survived in West Somerset and in the southwest more tenaciously than elsewhere. First, because they have been a country of small enclosed farms from the Middle Ages onwards. The open field system was never widely represented there. Secondly, because the small farmers possessed a constant market for centuries in the western cloth industry. Hooker, whoever he might be, wrote that the husbandmen of Devonshire kept cattles, oxen, horses and kine. Kine? He hath also sheep. It is by some affirmed that the number of sheep in this country is as great or greater than those in the shire of this land. What applies to Devon also applies to West Somerset. The small mixed farm was the making of thousands of yeomen and small owners, as they made the small farms. Though Cobbett did not explore this country, it is here that the survivors of the Cobbett tradition are to be found in groups rather than stray individuals. Here too farms not a survivor of the way here too farms not a survivor of the Cobbett way of life, but a pioneer among survivors. He is a realist breaking out of the wilderness of exploitation. His neighbouring farms, sorry, he, he, his neighbours farm by tradition. He farms by vocational and religious sense of the earth. They are natives. He is a newcomer. So pioneer and survivors meet in the same region, pursuing the same livelihood with the same end, the one by taking thought, the others by inheritance. In the late summer of 1944, I spent a week on my friend's farm. I shall not easily forget my first day there. We started at 5am in the darkness to pick up a train from Taunton, 25 miles away, lost our way thrice, caught the train because it was late, drove another 10 miles from 
Taunton, into the heart of one of the remotest countrysides of the West, went out into a barley field, pitched sheaves, took our supper close on midnight, and so to bed after a day of twenty-one hours. It was at a time the victorious arms of England were battling their way through France against the satanic power of the absolute state and opening the way for the deeper and ultimate struggle for England's soul. The times big with the shaping of destiny, the immemorial peace of the farm against the convulsion of the outer world, the, stink, the sinking back into the country activities of our forefathers, and yet the vivid sense of their immense implications for the future made what followed symbolic. It was a farm of only 50 acres, situated in the foothills, some said of the Brendons, others of the Quantocks. At any rate, it was in the seesaw region where they impinge and where a flat field is a freak. The farm buildings cluster where all the farm fields slide down like a fluted glass to the bottom common of both, to, the, to a bottom common to both. To, oh, to a bottom common to both. Oh, I see what you mean, yes. Only in the rickyard, round the midden, and in the vegetable garden could one walk on the level. On two sides it was enclosed by an L-shaped orchard of Quarrendons, Morgan sweets and other cider apples. The trees planted in a lawny pasture that slope more gently down to the Bartons than the fields about them. The farm, with its piggery, granary, stack field, bullock yard, stable, cider house, cow house, sandstone walls, workshop, lin hay, gates and cobbled paths, fitted itself into the elbow joint of the terraced orchard. This led to a discovery. A climb above the shorter arm of the orchard, up a permanent pasture and to the top, of a stubble of dredged corn above that sorry I'll read that again because I lost my lost my way in that one I apologize a climb above the shorter arm of the orchard up a permanent pasture and to the top of a stubble of dredge corn above that above that disclosed almost the complete range of the Quantox running northwest to Quantox head and southeast to wooded Cotherall, Cotherall Stone Hill, while to the south stretched the long, dark spinal ridge of the Black Downs. The gap between them allowed the site to travel on past the Liminster and Yeovil region to the pale opalcient heights walling the Vale of Blackmoor, sacred to the memory of William Barnes. In the centre of this gap, stood the old hunting tower, or folly, of Coombe Flory. The two massives converged there, and the tower was like a boss in the groined roof, linking them together. But what was remarkable was that the layout of the farm to the orchard was repeated on a grand scale by that of the solitary tower to the heads of the Quantocks and the Black Downs. The farm was cupped within this double crook, first 
in miniature by the two-sided orchard, and then by the vast outer ramps of the two convergent ranges, just as a horse-chestnut flower is contained by its calyx and spreading coronet of leaves. The orchard was the inner vallum of an earthwork as great as half of Somerset. The farm itself was the home of the new freedom. The farm itself was the home of a new freedom and seemed to draw something of its strength from the great Quantock range. From Cothelstone to Bagborough to the promontory of Will's Neck, a true mountain over a thousand feet, rearing prow-like over the Crocombe Woods and along the barrier ridge to Hurley Beacon and Bicknola. It is as clean as a downland scrap. This was the austerity of freedom. But the Quantocks have a variety of form of their own. The series of points beyond Will's Neck are moulded into low flattened cones, pauses between the long lines sweeping up to and away from them. They were already purpling against the time when the worsts ripen when oh sorry, when the warts they were already purpling against the time when the warts ripen among the heather and the bracken ruts among the corthal stone steeps. They were already drawing on their Tyrian cloak. Is it Tyrian? Tyrian cloak? For autumn. This was freedom's richness. Placed as a farm, placed as the farm was, all its greatness from horizon to horizon seemed implicit in its littleness. The large was contained in the smaller in a more direct and literal manner. The farmstead itself was of Quantock sandstone and the hogheads of cider had been sawn out of crowcorn woods. The silvery slats on one of the farm buildings, as big as the roofing stones of Purbeck and Horsham, were quarried from the ragstones of the Brendons. The steers were long-horned Devons and the cows a short-thorn cross with the same breed, whose bigness of bone and hardy constitution the hill pastures of the whole wide region had nurtured. The sheep, Dorset Downs, crossbred with Devon Longwools, are, as often as not, brought in August from Raleigh's Cross on the Brendons as hoggets for winter fattening from ewes run on the upland pastures and themselves sold in spring to the butchers. A tip cart in the open shed facing the rickyard had been made by an Exmoor wheelwright. Thus the whole landscape had contributed in one way and another to the farm in the midst of it. Wow, what about that? It's an amazing description. I mean, you, you almost need to savour that and and take it in to completely fully understand it. Of course, lots of regional places there. Um, let's just quickly have a look at some more. I'll give my eyes a bit of a break, if you don't mind. Uh, some more of the um, comments that are uh, coming in thick and wild. Um, I had a touch of Black Death recently, says Morton. Oh, dear. Um, but I didn't take a day off work. Bless you. I don't think you're allowed out of your house, are you? So um, 
in Spain. Haven't you been shut down again? Turbo Stream says, All I know is my allotment plot will be top-dressed with compost this winter. Sounds good. Uh, Linda Kane says, Old gardeners always used to pee on their compost heaps. No, my granddad did. Yes. Um, I wonder if one could spread, you know, if you've had your parents cremated, you could spread their ashes on the compost heap, presumably, if they were gardeners, you know, avid gardeners. I did think the Black Death... I didn't think the Black Death was still around, says Snort. Uh, it resides in the U-bend of my lavatory. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, Linda Kane says, And the old cottages would shovel the contents of the soil toilet onto the veg pack, patch, and they grew amazing tomatoes from seeds that passed through the digestive tracts. Blimey. Uh, moving down a little bit. Ed Loud says, uh, I'm... Dreadful for collecting books, Richard. Spent far too much time in the second-hand bookshops. Finally had to give most of my collection to charity, sh charity shops when space was needed. Yes. Um, Snort says that there's more sheep than people in Berkshire. That may well be true. Um, let's just... Yeah, some more business about peeing on the cabbages and things. I, I know someone who still does pee. Right, good. Uh, right, we'll, uh, we'll press on. This is part two of this chapter on Somerset Yeoman. Talk, I'll have a swig of water, actually. The holding was a family farm, as most were, uh, sorry, as were most of the others in the neighbourhood, because nature's own sweet and cunning hand had, had ordained it to be so. It was managed by a brother and sister, an occasional pupil, a labourer waiting for a holding of his own, and the services of neighbours, friends and relations at peak seasons. Since my friend owned it, it may be considered a small yeoman's farm, such farms being more or less independent of contractors, cropping programmes from Whitehall, man-hours, timesheets, machinery, chemicals and efficiency, in short of the modern economic system, are specifically regional and self-supporting. By the luck of my former writings, I had become the friend of this contemporary yeoman who had brought me into what is called a backward area, an area, that is to say, where if you refuse to cooperate with nature and start to bully her, you go under. There are here, there are very few roads. They are nearly all steep and winding lanes, boxed in with embanked hedgerows, often 12 to 15 feet high, and forming tunnels unless the billhook is active among them, and they are well laid in autumn. They are earth hedges, they are earth hedges, and the varied growth, and a lot of it is holly, stands upon four to six feet of soil. These lanes, which lead to what the world without would call nowhere, namely to hamlets, villages and farms, the cornerstone of England, are so hedged for an excellent good reason. The region lies on the red miles and sandstones of the Permian. These are light, open and porous, but of considerable depth, a kind and pliant soil, but of no great body and substrate. 
Consequently, it slides down the steep places and fewer otherwise in the heavy rains, and the banks are built up to hold it up. My friend carted fifty tons of such soil up the hill again after one such storm. If some of the steeper land could be terraced, as in the Alp, Alp Maritimes, its productivity might well be doubled, and thousands of tons of soil saved annually. The stone for the retaining walls is at hand, and its intercease, intercesses, inter, 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 you know what I'm trying to say, intercesses, could be planted. Peas, beans, strawberries. And oh, in its intercese, inter, inter, interstices. I can't say it. I don't know why. Uh, in in anyway, into the interstices or whatever it is, uh, could be planted uh, peas, beans, strawberries, and other crops. Instead of carrying the soil downhill, the rainfall could thus be controlled to irrigate it. For the re same reason, as the farmers make these high hedges. They use the Huxtable one-way plough, a shapely and ingenious implement with two shares and mould boards, one above the other. It turns the sod uphill on the slope and and can be quickly upended on the headland to throw it up the same way on the return journey. I know of no instance where a tractor has drawn such a plough. The modern absurdity of pulling a plough with nobody to handle the stilts would probably make it impossible. It would probably make it impossible. No central government can make arrangements and adjustments like these. Nature, or rather, Quantock and Brendan nature, is the government. And because nature is a good deal wiser than the most efficient bureaucracy, it is a home where the family farmer. It is a home. It is a home for the family farmer. Sorry, of such a life as he leads among these tossing foothills, self-sufficiency is the structure, and neighbourliness is the buttress. The forces of an alien and external world may do and have done and will do their utmost to pick his pocket among the protecting hills, but to rob it wholesale. Would be to destroy it and convert it into a wilderness. Here, then, a pattern of life can be cherished without excessive interference, and the remnants of its traditional heritage conserved. The basilisk eye of the greater world only gets glimpses and side glimpses at the little farms tucked along these woods and hills and lanes. The nest is hidden among the briars of back. Woodness and the thorns of remoteness. I could rest from the labour of the stooks and stitches and hear no sound of things alien and hostile, no sound but the rustle of straw, the quacking of ducks, the cheeping of chicks, the plop of windfalls, the crunching of the cartwheel, the chumbling of piglets. The piece I drew was not only. From a chime as soft as down, from wooing airs winnowed by the hills from the Atlantic, it also came from the tranquil round of the farm, the good lives of its household and its friendliness to me, the timelessness of what I heard and saw, and the ancientness of Somerset 
that was not ancient at all, except in the sense that it had gone on for a very long time. For to build the rich and milk oh sorry, for to build the rick and milk the cows and harness the shires and pen the sheep and haul the wagon was neither ancient nor modern. It was conditioned by the nature of the soil and the physiography of the region. They were at once its immunity and impunity from a world too busy, too deeply engaged in one's desperate crisis after another to notice it, to improve it and reduce it to its own fantastic levels. A design for living was preserved because it had to be for man to live among these hills at all. Yet signs there were that the outside world had had a finger in the pie. The former tenant of the farm had been so squeezed by the modern debt system, the legitimate descendant of Cobbett's The Thing, that he had left it semi-derelict. There was plenty of evidence of the shifts and evasions that he had put to keep his feet on the soil at all. Not a few of the Bartons were roofed with corrugated iron. Patchings, proppings and improvisations were everywhere. The thatch, this is a country of thatch, and Brandon slats more and more usurped by Welsh slats, needed new coats. In places he had just let go. Many of the drains were blocked. The stable had become a den for parasites with dry rot in the stall timbers. The rafters worm-eaten. The, rat, the racks, the racks gaping. Walls and cobbled floors pitted with holes for water and urine to seep into and to give the horses thrush and grease. For three years my friend had worked at the restoration of the farm steadings and the acres surrounding it, and one of the little jobs, and one of my little jobs, was to go round and discuss what could be reconditioned and what needed to be replaced. He had copious ideas of adding to the stone walls, agreeably numerous already, of having wrought iron gates to the garden, he had partly constructed these from the local blacksmith of building a gazebo and a loggia and of substituting rounded stone pillars to linhay and cart shed in the local idiom to replace the makeshift wooden props. A great opportunity had been presented him of combining the best of the old with the best of the new. That best takes some finding. As a modern soldier training infantry to be individuals, not automata, put me. Put it. Sorry. As a modern soldier training infantry to be individuals, not automata, put it to me in commenting on the post war plans for the Sudan. Great schemes for economic development are planned. We have. We are to have cotton spinning mills, ginning factories, sugar and soap factories, so that the good soil and climate for growing things can be made to produce exportable articles in spite of our remote position. The moderns have their knees on the wrong side of their legs. Forwards is really backwards. 
My yeoman friend was painfully finding his way to a restoration of the tradition, both in building and cultivation, not as a modern antiquarian who loves the past for its own sake and as having no meaning for the present and future. He had perceived that the tradition, moulded alike by the natural conditions of the neighbourhood and the experience of man, living by good workmanship and enduring principles, was the only workable and satisfying measure by which to work, to build, to farm and to live. If concrete would aid him to that end, then he would use concrete, but not corrugated iron, so with the farm, so with the farm itself. These foothills, sandwiched between the Quantocks and the Brendons, are imminently a sheep and barley country, and when their wool enriched the medieval Tudor and Stuart... Sorry. So with the farm itself. These foothills, sandwiched between the Quantocks and the Brendons, are preeminently a sheep and barley country, as when their wool enriched the medieval Stuart and Tudor cloth towns. So the farmers try to keep the sheep because without sheep to feed and consolidate the light land it will fail to bear any but the poorest crops or to raise any but screws for stock. The farmers have thus for years been torn between keeping sheep for the sake of their land and, since they are now considered uneconomic, getting rid of them for the sake of their profits. That's very interesting that he should say that sheep back in the mid-1940s was uneconomic, and here we are with sheep being un, un... Well, I don't know how economic it is, but we know that the fleeces are uneconomic. Um, I'm just looking for a place to stop now because... Uh, we're getting to the end of the thing. On his 50 acres, my friend kept a score of ewes and up to 40 to 50 hoggets folded on roots in the winter. When sheep are part of the canon of good husbandry, barley, usually, and roots and kale, always, must go with them. So he grew nine acres of barley and ten of roots. As corn follows roots on rotational principle, here was the skeleton of the farm economy. For the same reasons, a cross between the Devon long wool and the Dorset down in the sheep have, and between the short thorn for milk and the long thorn red, Devon, in the cattle was part of the same canon. It was part of the tradition, with a slight compromise over the milk, and of the directions issued for good farming by this particular land and its particular confirmation in this particular place. Accordingly, my friend kept both half a dozen cows for a small milk yield and the rest Devon steers. Their good health and appearance were nature's own certificate to him of acting in accordance to her decrees. You can always tell whether or no farm beasts are living on a soil suited to them and organically fed by an indescribable bloom or lustre upon them. Oh, I see, yes. Uh, pigs, too, are uneconomic. But some Somerset hills and, and hollows are not ruled by the laws of accountancy, and so he kept pigs, breeding a sow with a litter, a gilt for the future, and unspecialised porkers and baconers. 
For baconers on a small farm are simply porkers that continue on the farm a few months longer with a mixture of barley meal for the lean and softer foods for the fat. The market is secondary, self-maintenance primary in an economy interlocked with the needs of the demands of the land. Oats and dredge corn help to feed them and the rest of the stock helped to feed them and the rest of the stock, and so he grew nine acres of them as he did Cobbett's corn and maize and intended for an early feed to grow rye. Geese, ducks, poultry, three horses and a foal completed the tally. If combine harvesters and other saurians spawned out of the machine shops had appeared on a land like this, the land would have laughed them out of countenance. To plough out all it to plough out all its permanent pastures would have been to invite the soil to fall downhill. To have run a tractor over the steeper lands would have invited it to overturn. The very smallness of the farm put a veto on monoculture and persuaded the receptive farmer to mixed grazing, so that all types of herbage were equally grazed down. Here I was seeing sights absent from the thousands of fields I'd passed on my long journey. Pigs in the stubble and sheep, cattle, horses, pigs and free-running poultry, all consorting together in one field. This packed animal husbandry induced in its turn a psychological reaction – it imparted a warmth and liveliness and a diversity to the scene. The animals of a small farm get to know people and there is a familiar communion between man and beast. That is very good for both. My friend's ambition was to make cheese and many other pounds of butter than he could make now. This would be a further step to that circulation of farm produce on the spot and disposal of the, dis the, and disposal of the surpluses which are the secret both of a balanced economy and the self-maintenance of a farm in health of soil and stock. No chemicals and hardly any fertilisers except a little frost phosphate for the barley were imported for this farm at all. It is a general rule prevailing on nearly all the farms in the region. Apart from his midden yard, trodden by the cattle in the winter and urine fed by pipes, my friend is attempting to fit compost into the farm economy. The cows are trained to dung a straw-filled groove behind their tails before leaving the milking stalls, and this is removed to the compost pits. This is pioneer work indeed. It is, astonish it is an astonishing fact, though with the simple explanation that every type and manner of man connected with the land, the most ignorant of the principles of organic manuring is the agricultural scientist. Being wholly preoccupied with chemical manures, to him, muck is merely an obstacle to progress. My friend has also his own cider press in a cider house and makes his own cider for his own hogheads. When, his practice, when this practice is followed throughout a neighbourhood, it will be found that the cider tastes differently from farm to farm. For cider 
as for cheeses locally, is the condition of variety. There is hedge cider in Somerset, which, if not taken at a meal, is an invasion. If the rickyard stood, if sorry, in the rickyard stood a reed comber, a simple device of a block of wood on a trestle and studded with five-inch nails to clean the straw for thatching the rick. It was an indication of the dependence of the whole farm upon the principle of self-help. I could have, I have no doubt that this young farmer would well and truly learn the innermost meaning of husbandry. The land itself was trying to teach him when I noticed that he had cut the ivy from the hedgerow trees on the farm. Self-help, as our nation once knew, breeds dignity and independence as well as hardiness and simplicity. The value of that independence has come somberly, but also richly home to us today. On the positive side, the self-help of the Yugoslav refugees at El Shat in the desert on the wrong side of the Suez Canal regenerated them from the from the demoralization incident to the refugees into a self-respecting community on the negative side the damnation of belson and buchenwald was the fruit of absolute power in conjunction with a no less absolute docility a less familiar attribute of it is what i may call restfulness this was demonstrated during the harvesting of the barley. Barley is a tricky crop. It likes a non-acid, well-drained soil. It must be cut dead ripe. It needs a hot sun during the maturing process. The soft straw absorbs moisture more readily than the harder straw of oats and wheat. And if not completely dry, it soon sweats in the stack. The time to cut and carry must be seized with promptitude and dispatch, especially if it is, as this was, a good malting sample. If you are a small owner, you must work hard pretty well all day and all year round, and if you grow barley, you must work harder than that. Yet the business of carrying... We're very close to the end, by the way, um, just so you know, because I know we've passed five o'clock. Yet the business of carrying and ricking the barley on this farm gave the impression of social leisure rather than urgent teamwork. The wagons grinding up and down the hill from field to rickyard, from pitching in the one to pitching in the other, the constant intercourse between the two, the very bustle of working against time seemed to hold the rhythm of the long day drifting into evening and of the evening swooning into dusk and of the clouds heaving in full sail over the growing rick of the little round, red and sweet quarrelandons on the orchard trees, stained yet redder from the redding sun. Every movement was calm and deliberate, and so bestowed grace and measure upon the mover, and a something statuesque upon the human figure. The very size of the rick and these West Somerset rigs and these West Somerset ricks are very large. One, I heard, being 14 yards by 6 and 20 feet, 25 feet high, though on the Brendans they build little round ricks. In its retaining wall, 
and on two sides seem to contribute to the magnanimous breadth and stability of the whole scene, caught up into the long processional roll of the seasons. The rustle of the straw now blended with the crackling of flames as the great fire in the open chimney piece threw shadows over the room. Earth had drawn another breath. Man in unison with her had gathered in her goodness. How beautiful is that? Isn't that that is and that is how the farming of the past was a scene of hard work but somehow a scene that just seemed interconnected and perfect and and worked with with time honored tradition and people knowing exactly what to do and to work with nature in a way and and now farming on an industrial scale poisoning the soil poisoning the food and yanking it out by machines is just rather horrific. I hope you enjoyed that reading. Sorry to have um, gone on just that little bit. Um, if only we could bring back the small mixed farming um, positive proof, I think, there that, that shows that it is possible as much as people have disagreed. Um, lots of interesting comments there, but I will uh, finish now. And uh, thank you so much for watching. It is the end of the week. I... Uh, I'm going to be doing a Vogue show, hopefully with Mr. Suggett, and I've got to set that up because we'd be filming in the kitchen, so I've got some cables and things to lay. Um, there's a chance that I will be away next week, in which case there will be no lives. Um, I may not go if the weather looks as bleak as it does at the moment in Wales, where I want to do an interview, so I may postpone the interview I've got with Patrick Holden from the Sustainable Food Trust. I don't want to do that because, you know, it's hard to pin down some of these um, powerful people and it's a, a great opportunity to meet him. But at the moment, Tuesday is looking absolutely dreadful weather-wise. That's the day I've arranged. And I want to film some of the Welsh countryside en route and on the way back to um, and walk in that countryside whilst I have the opportunity to look at the farms and things. And I don't want to do that in the rain because it's just going to look rubbish and I want to show it at its best merit. So it looks like I'm going to have to postpone that. So I may be here next week. So I will put a message out one way or another, probably on Facebook. I'll put, um, I think there's messaging systems in YouTube uh, to, to let you know one way or another. Um, so I don't quite know where that is. But uh, thank you very much for... Um, uh head loud yeah thanks for that uh vobes lives matters <laughs> um at lives as in live shows uh in case suddenly somebody gets all jumpy uh we got bonus bonus 10 minutes today yes i hope i i didn't bore you too much thank you so much anyway um i'll let you all know about that uh, but otherwise if i don't go i'll see you on monday have a fantastic weekend whatever you're doing uh there will be videos of course um, on the Bald Explorer channel and tonight hopefully well they'll be alive uh, but I'm hoping it with Richard Suggett but um, he may get called to go to work at the last minute uh, yes that's it YouTube community post that's the one yes absolutely and I believe they do these stories now so uh, I don't know how, where you find the stories I think you have to click on the picture of me in the circle so I could do that but anyway 
there we go thank you for watching i hope you uh, enjoyed it all um it's been great fun reading it and um i will either see you on monday or i won't but i will see you at some point <laughs> take care and